Okay, another review of an article from the Boston Consulting Group book on strategy. Um, this time it's an article by Bruce Henderson called The Rule of Three and Four. So Jack Welch is famous for his mantra that GE should get out of every business that it could not be number one or number two in. And he had a famous saying that went along with that, that went, uh, that went fix it, close it, or sell it. If it can't be number one or two, get out. Why did he have that philosophy? Why not? What's wrong with being number three? What's wrong with being number five or number 10 as long as you're making money, right? Well, you know, number one, you, you can look behind it and say, well, that's focus and that's a great strategy or, or tactic for any business, right? But it's more than that. And I, I read an article from this book, The Rule of Three and Four by Bruce Henderson that really outlines why why Jack Welch had that strategy. And I would assume that the Boston Consulting Group consulted with GE or he had, he had some exposure to this and this is what he was thinking about. So this is kind of the background behind that and, and why that philosophy of number one or number two is so important. So the rule of three and four is that in a stable market, stable competitive markets will gravitate towards three competitors. And the largest competitor will have a market share that is no more than four times the market share of the smallest competitor. So Bruce Henderson said, this is based on kind of his more anecdotal evidence and experience. And at the time he wrote this article, which was 1976, he didn't have a study to back it up. It's interesting that there's since been a study that Boston Consulting Group did um, and it turns out that he was exactly right for the most part and in most markets with, with this, with this maxim. And so I'm going to operate under the assumption that this maxim exists. It's kind of like a rule of thumb, a heuristic. Um, and it's kind of like the, the Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule that, uh, 80% of your results will come from 20% of your efforts that kind of applies universally in a million different uh, scenarios. So, you know, I think any serious business person should operate under the assumption that this exists in the market. So first I'm gonna go a bit more in depth into the rule and kind of what's going on here in the framework and then how you can apply it to your business. So, so again, each competitor will have a market share about double the next largest competitor. So let's take 100% market share, because that's obviously the most you can have. And what this means is the largest competitor could have, let's pick the market share and just keep the math simple and say 50%, 50% market share. The next largest competitor, the second place competitor is gonna have a market share roughly half of that. So 25%. And then the third place competitor, the next largest, is going to have a market share roughly half of the second place. Remember, the second place is 25%, so the third place is gonna be 12.5%. And again, for the second part of that rule, the largest competitor, 50%, shall have a market share that's no larger than four times the smallest. And remember, in my example, the smallest was 12.5%, so that rule holds true. So that's what a stable market is gonna look like. Now, the largest competitor, for whatever reason, could have a different market share, and this could be a little different. So they could have, say, a 60% market share, and then the second place would have a 
and the third place would have a 15%. Um, we'll, we'll see in a minute why it's probably not going to be less than that, meaning it's probably not going to be something where the uh, second place competitor has less than a 25% market share, but, but hold on for that. But it, so theoretically it could be a market where it's 40, 20, 10, um, but that's unlikely. Could be a market where it's 80, 40, 20. Um, so a number of ways that that could work out, but that's the general math. Again, the each each smaller competitor is going to have half the market share of the competitor ahead of it. For the math to work out, this for the second part of that math to work out, where the, the smallest competitor has a market share that is no more, uh, is a quarter of the largest competitor, that there has to be three. You can't keep going down at four. Because in my first example, if, you know, you had a uh, the leading competitor at a 50%, Second place had 25%. Third place had 12 and a half. Well, the fourth place, if the rule kept going down, was would theoretically have a little over 6%. Well, that's less than, that's less than a quarter of the first place. So that would the rule wouldn't hold true there. Now, in many markets, um, even stable markets, there's going to be more than three competitors. Okay, But, and we'll go into a little more on this in a minute, those kind of after-ran competitors they're not going to be major players in the market. Um, and frankly, they're probably there because of either mismanagement or, you know, or it could be that they're taking a serious run at, at that market because they dabble in, in other markets. They're trying to get into this one, but, but that's probably unlikely as well. They're probably kind of after rands that are likely to be consolidated. If the market's large enough, the large competitors are going to buy them or they're just going to go away. So again, three competitors, the smallest competitor has a market share that is a fourth of the largest, or the largest has a market share that's four times the smallest of this rule in these stable markets. Any competitor with less than a quarter market share cannot be an effective competitor because they won't have enough market share to drive down costs to a point they can be competitive. So Bruce Henderson has this famous experience curve, which is as you gain more experience and more market share, your cost structure is going to go down. So we often have this referred to as, or this is often referred to as economies of scale. As you grow larger, so you grow larger because you get more market share, your costs are driven down. Um, you can get a larger factory that can produce goods cheaper. Uh, your G&A expenses are going to go down because usually, you know, you're going to have, uh, say, one controller even as you grow larger. So your controller expenses as a function of your whole business are going to go down over time. And, and other G&A expenses, not just your controller, obviously, but your marketing costs go down over time. You may be able to buy supplies at a cheaper rate. Um, you may be able to, as you gain experience in the business, have uh, uh, more employees per manager. Uh, there, there's a million ways, but the, the general rule is, is that as you gain market share, your cost structure is going to go down. So what he's saying here, any competitor with less than a quarter of the market share isn't going to be able to compete because they aren't going to be drive, able to drive down costs to the point where they can match the cost structure of the larger competitors. So remember what I said, and this will become apparent in a second. There's really no way if the rule of three and four holds true 
for the third place competitor to have more than a 25% market share. Um, because mathematically, remember in my previous example, 50%, 25%, and then 12.5%. That 12.5% is nowhere near the 25%, and we'll go into in a little bit why that's dangerous. But you know, even in that example, the, the second place competitor is at the 25% mark. What happens with the experience curve is, in this case, the market leader, they should have lower cost than the second place uh, competitor. And if they're smart, the experience curve uh, theory states that they're going to use their lower cost to either pass on cost savings to the customers, increase quality and innovation, or some combination of both, and they're going to gain market share over time. And Obviously, the, the second place competitor, if they're at 25%, you know, they, they're not as, they don't have as efficient a cost structure as the first place, but they should be able to compete and match those price savings and drive some innovation uh, to, to compete with the, the, the first place uh, competitor. Not do it as well. The margins aren't going to be as high as a result, but they're going to be able to compete. The lower you are down on the market share, uh, in terms of market share, the higher your cost structure is going to be. You're not going to have the same economies of scale and you're going to have a hard time competing. So again, that's where Henderson's rule of thumb is saying, if you're not at least at 25%, you're in real danger because if the market leader starts driving down costs and passing those to the consumer or developing a better product, you are hurt. you're hurting. And, and so you need to make sure you get to that 25%. So that's where going back to Jack Welsh, again, he realized that there's a real danger in third place and, and there's even more danger down below third place. So his maxim, again, if we can't be number one or number two, we want to get out of there. And, and that's why it's a cost structure thing. You, you're not going to be able to compete long-term. You know, I was, I'm listening uh, right now to uh, who's, who says elephants can't dance um, by a, a former IBM CEO, and I'm going to butcher his name. His first name's Lewis. I'm going to butcher his last name. It begins with a G. If I try to do it, so I'm going to pass. But you know what? What I found really interesting is they were actually one of the early arrivers to having a essentially an internet infrastructure. Um, you know, to to plug a, a, a PC in and have it get get online essentially. Now, what was interesting is he said. So you, you would think, you know, and when I think of internet providers now, I think of, you know, Verizon, AT&T, they're all phone providers. But back then, and this is the early 90s, they didn't have the, the infrastructure or the knowledge to go ahead and develop internet. But eventually they all said, hey, this is logical because we have this phone, we're getting into this. And what IBM said was, well, we already have this product. But our market share is going to decline because, you know, all of these large companies are going to invest because they absolutely need to have this in infrastructure. So they started seeing their uh, network business go down as, you know, your AT&Ts, your Verizons and other phone companies got into it. So they sold the product because they knew they couldn't be first. They couldn't be second. So they got out. And it was interesting to, he, he said it in a different way, but he was basically going to the rule of three and four. He said, we, we couldn't be a leader in that market. Um, we, we had to get out. And they sold their network business for something like $5 billion. 
and reinvested in other areas of IBM. And it was a huge ultimate success story for them. Um, but it, it's funny how this, this rule now that I, I, I've heard it and internalized it, I see it in so many you know, different business settings. So again, any competitor with less than a quarter market share can't be effective. And the market leader controls pricing and stability. If it holds prices too high, doesn't pass on savings or doesn't innovate, the market will shake up and the market leader will lose market share. Maybe the second place will gain market share and the third place will gain market share and the leader will go down, but something will shake up. And that's why the market leader has to, when they drive down prices because of economies of scale, what, what they need to do with that is make sure that they're trying to gain market share as much as they can by passing on those savings and those quality improvements to their customers. But, but at a certain point, okay, that, that becomes counterproductive. And I'll go into that in a little more. So again, if they hold prices too high, they're going to, the market's going to shake up and they're going to lose market share. On the other hand, if the market leader holds prices down to hold their market share, the current market share, or even gain market share, there's no way to displace them. So there's no way for the second party to match their cost, although they're going to be better equipped than the third place. But the third place is going to have no chance if the market leader decides to gain market share. So one question you have is, well, why wouldn't the market leader just go ahead and drive down costs to get 100% of the market and become a monopoly. And here's an interesting perspective. At some point, the cost of gaining additional market share become counterproductive and you'd be better off investing in other areas of your business. And that's why this equilibrium gets raised. And that's why the rule of three and four really works is because at some point, the market leader reaches a point where, yeah, they could drive down costs and invest more, but it doesn't really behoove them because they're not going to get a great return on that investment relative to investing in other areas of the business. Uh, what are they, what's, what's the saying? The juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. And that's why monopolies are rare. And the rule of three and four applies in so many areas is because at some point there, there's just no point in driving down costs and passing them along and reinvesting, you know, in, in gaining market share. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, that may be at a 50% market share, maybe at a 60 and it may be at a 70, but there's some point where it just doesn't make sense to get that additional market share. And monopolies in, in reality are often going to be, you know, either, either they, it's going to be some form of mismanagement because, you know, either that, that extra investment, meaning they drove down costs and didn't just take that as, as dividends, um, they could have passed on to the, the shareholders by by dividends, they could have invested elsewhere in the business, you know, to gain scale. But at some point, it, it just wouldn't have made sense. Um, here's an example I, I use a, in a lot. I just thought of this is Amazon. You know, originally they were a bookstore, um, an online bookstore, and they started gaining market share in the bookstore world. And they could have sat there and, you know, driven their cost structure to the point where they completely drove every bookstore in the nation out of control. They they or out of business. They probably could have, you know, made instant delivery of books. Um, they probably could have had an endless supply of any book, print on demand, you know, things like that. But at some point, it didn't make any sense. And look what they did. They reinvest in other stuff like, you know, uh, consumer packaged goods, videos, um, uh, just general products, 
you know, they, they sell everything. And now they're the world's largest store. Um, so at some point, it doesn't make sense to get a monopoly, even though they probably could have got a monopoly on bookstores. Uh, but you want to reinvest and grow your business in other ways. So that's a great example of the rule of three and four and why it just doesn't really make sense to try and become a monopoly at some point. The return on investment just isn't there. Okay. So the, again, the three competitor market becomes stable because it's, it's not advantageous for anyone to try and raise a market share. The second place competitor, it doesn't really make that much sense because the first place competitor can drive down their costs and rebuff their efforts. And then the third place is even more of a disadvantage because it has two people who can go ahead and, 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 and eat it. Up. So that makes it when you're the third place competitor, unless you can quickly gain market share to become number two and get over 25%, you're in a really, really dangerous position because the experience curve just makes it cheaper for larger competitors to produce their, their good or service. And they can easily invest to ward off your attempts at gaining market share. So, you know, maybe you're in a position where you can quickly gain that market share or you have an alternative way of gaining that market share, but third place is just no place to be. Because again, in, in the event of heavy competition, the third place is going to be the casualty. If the leader decides to cut prices, the second place may be able to compete by lowering their margins. The third place is just going to be out of there. There's a lot of risk. And the... Third place competitor is also is not only is that risk from it's going to have a hard time gaining market share because the first two competitors have a a, uh, a lower cost structure, but it's also a risk from outsiders. And outsiders could come in a couple of ways. So number one, an outsider could be in a similar market, and that market they have some the market is similar enough where they basically have some experience going into their market um you know our, our business we do uh, outsourcing for hospitals and and uh but it makes sense for us to go over into similar areas like you know resorts and things like that because we have enough experience in hospitals where it's easily translatable and we we get immediate economies of scale so that that's something where a, a competitor it makes sense for them to come to your market and if you're the third place competitor in any given market you're in trouble when someone like that comes into your market because they can easily displace you and then it's a race for them to try and displace the second place competitor and get that all important 25 percent market share so again third place is the riskiest position you also are at a risk for smaller competitors that are are mismanaging their their assets so again if you're less than 25 percent and you're say the fourth or fifth place you could be a large enough company and maybe it's just a division of your company where that company is still allowing you to compete in this market where you have no chance of getting to that 25% market share in second place, number one or number two. Well, that's probably mismanagement. That company should be probably, if they, if they don't think they can get to number one or number two, the risk is so great for even being in that business. Because again, if you have less than 25%, you're always in a high risk position because you don't have the cost structure to compete you shouldn't be in there. It's probably mismanagement that they are in there. So again, the third place is vulnerable from two types of businesses. Number one is the complementary 
uh, uh, the, the competitor who's in a complementary market who can translate that over to the, to the market you're in and already have a great deal of uh, economies of scale from their experience in, in that complementary business or it's from competitors who are just mismanaging and are putting, you know, throwing good money after bad staying in the market. The first and the second place, they're big enough where they're, they're not as much of a, ri a risk for that because again, they can drive down their cost structure and drive down their pricing to, you know, throw out smaller competitors. So again, going back to Jack Welsh's comment, you know, all that to say, that's why if you're not first and you're not second, you're in an extremely risky position. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if markets, if you look at a market, and there's plenty of markets that it looks like they don't follow the rule of three and four because maybe they have, you know, they're the largest competitor only has 30% of the market. And then there's three other competitors that have, you know, say uh, 20, uh, you know, 15 and, and, and whatever equals a hundred um, or you have five or six competitors. That's a market that's ripe for a shakeup and the leader, if they want to, as they gain market share, can go ahead and drive down their cost structure. And if they do that, they're going to gain market share rapidly uh, because they can offer it at a lower price than, than the competitors. And that market is eventually going to shake out so that it follows the rule of three and four. And that larger competitor is often going to do that in the form of buying out the smaller competitors. That's why you often see uh, situations where in a market, there's great a great trend towards consolidation. So uh, the, the car rental market, um, you know, there was a, a trend towards consolidation where now it's, you know, uh, Hertz, Avis, um, and I think Enterprise are the big three. And there are other ones, but those are definitely either after RANs or they focus on a specific niche. And we'll get into niches in a, in a in a minute and kind of why that's, that that's different. Um, but you know, again, if the market doesn't follow the rule of three and four, it's right for a shakeout. So if you see a, you know, publicly traded or a market with a lot of publicly traded companies that they're competing, you know, those smaller ones are right for a takeout. And that's why, you know, often, you know, uh, 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 merger arbitrage, I'm uh, not sorry, mer not merger arbitrage, but, you know, people who are hedge funds that are, are, are betting on event driven, uh, an event driven hedge fund that's betting on acquisitions is often going to look at that and say, okay, there's five, you know, competitors in the market. Here's the four, probably the three, the four and the five. Those are ones that are likely to get bought up by the larger competitors. So they may invest in them thinking that once the buyout occurs, that stock is going to go up significantly. So that's how you would see it's an unstable market because it doesn't follow the rule of three and four, and that's likely to shake out at some point. Um, or there could be price wars, again, where the market leader, you know, drives down prices, the second place follows, and the smaller ones just can't keep pace. So it's going to go to that, you know, that, that three competitor market eventually. In the event that an unstable market starts to stabilize because of a price war consolidation, what the competitors got to think about is they need to grow faster than the market as a whole just to maintain their position, but they really got to grow so that they gain some significant market share. So it's not enough to stay in one place. 
you know, and you, you've got to grow faster than the market as a whole because it's going to shake out to eventually be, you know, three competitors. And again, you don't want to be the third place one. You certainly don't want to be lower than that. So Henderson ends his article, and this is kind of a more sophisticated way of, of saying Jack Wells's uh, uh, fix it, close it, or sell it that I think is really interesting. If you cannot be a lead, leader in a product market center, cash out as soon as practical. Take your write-off, take your tasks, tax loss, take your cash value, reinvest in products and markets where you can be a successful leader, concentrate. So what he's really saying, you know, in the whole of the, the article is if you can't be number one or number two, there's too much risk and you've, you've got to get out of there. So go ahead and close the business, take a write off, sell it if you can get your cash value, but focus on businesses where you can be a market leader and concentrate. So that's, you know, a, a bit of a more robust definition of or, or explanation of kind of where Jack Welsh got his philosophy from. Um, I want to transition this to how does that apply for, for your business and what you should be thinking about? So the first implication is that the relevant market that you're attacking becomes very important and what its boundaries are becomes the, the basis and the starting point for your strategy. So you need to focus on a market you can lead and avoid direct competition in markets where you can't and you can't compete. So, you know, what does that mean? And let's, let's go in, into an example. So take, take a real estate agent. If I was, I live in Austin. So if I looked at the top three real estate agents in Austin, I don't know, I have no idea who they are. And I was a brand new real estate agent. I wouldn't be under the impression that I could compete with those three real estate agents right away. And I think it'd be foolish to do it. How, how would you compete with those three real estate agents right away? You're, you're, you're nobody. Well, I guess the only way you can do that is investing in a significant amount of marketing, you know, probably through TV ads, billboards, Facebook, social media, yada, yada, yada. Imagine as a new real estate agent, how expensive that would be. A new real estate agent without significant financial backing just couldn't do it. And I would also say, even if a real estate agent had significant financial backing, it'd probably be a foolish move to do that because you'd invest millions and millions of dollars and the return on that millions, even if you could compete with those three, that probably, you know, wouldn't be yield a great return on your investment. So, you know, you, you could be just a fool and, and mismanage your money and go ahead and try and compete with those three top agents, but it probably doesn't make much sense. A better way to be would be to take a step back and say, well, what can I compete in? Maybe I live in a neighborhood with, you know, 400 homes and I can compete with the top three agents in that neighborhood. And maybe that's where I should focus all my energy and especially my marketing dollars. And I should, you know, I'd get much more bang for the buck by doing flyers to those 400 homes than I ever would trying to, you know, send marketing materials to every single person in Austin. And, you know, maybe I can get in the top three. And, and again, you want to get in the top two in my specific neighborhood. You know, maybe I'm not quite there yet where I think I can even compete there. So maybe I want to take, a, you know, a certain segment of, of my neighborhood. Maybe I want to focus on my neighborhood, but I want to focus on certain streets or I want to focus on people with kids my age. There's some market which I need to attack. And that's why people talk so much about finding your target market and this really goes into niching, uh, niche. So, 
you know, niche or niche, however you want to say it. So there's that saying niche and grow rich and that's it. You've got to find the market where you can be number one or number two. And, you know, my feeling is when you're thinking about what market you want to go into, whatever your business is, it should be the largest market in which you think that you can be number one and number or number two. So, you know, if you're a real estate agent, it might be your local, local neighborhood. You know, if you're an attorney, uh, maybe it's, you know, the 10 mile radius around your office and, you know, you focus on that. Who are your referral sources going to be? Which business should you market to? You know, um, there's got to be some niche market that, that you should be serving. You know, I thought of a, another example um, uh, of restaurants. Well, if you're in a small town, you know, you, y- you, there's probably not going to be more than three restaurants in a town of say a thousand people. And, you know, if you have a, a burger place and, you know, you're sitting there going, well, should I be a burger place? Well, there's already a burger place and there's only going to be three restaurants in town. So you probably want to do something that's a little different and say, you know, that it's a town where there's a burger place you know, a, a Mexican food restaurant, and then a, uh, a Chinese food place, you're probably going to have a very difficult time trying to do a second Chinese food store in that town. So there's not gonna be enough of a market. Whereas, you know, if you go to a large city, you know, you, you could definitely focus on, you know, doing a multiple Chinese food stores. Um, in fact, you could have different uh, areas of, of, of Chinese cuisine that you, you focus on if the market's large enough. So you've got to take, the, take it and sit there and say, you know, what is the market that I'm trying to attack? And what does my target market need to be for me to be number one or number two? And as you, if you're a smaller business, you really got to focus your market and you can't take such a spread approach because if you do, there's larger competitors that are just going to be able to outplay you at that game. So this rule of, of, of three and four and the focus on being number one or number two, I think it applies to any business. You've just got to focus on and strategize over what is your target market going to be in order for the rule to apply effectively. Um, I thought of a, another you know cool example and, and uh Boots, which is a, a boot company in Austin, you know, when they started out, you know, take the top three boot companies. I'm, I'm just going to guess here because there's, there's also a lot of niches in, in boots. Um, but, it, you know, if I had to say they basically compete with, I would say they compete with uh, Area and, and, and Justin's, that type of kind of second tier boot, boot uh, brand, you know, they could have tried to do their boots and go immediately into your cavenders and your boot barns and, and those types of stores to, you know, get some distribution, but they wouldn't have been that differentiated. What's interesting is they focused on an extremely small market at first. They basically did three boots. Um, I'm sorry. They did. I, I think at first they did one boot in three colors and it was basically a alternative to a Lucchese boot that was cheaper, significantly cheaper than Lucchese's. Their boot was in the, you know, say 250 range, whereas the same boot that was a Lucchese would cost more like 400 bucks. And they did it straight mail order. Um, so that was their distribution channel. And their marketing was targeted Facebook ads and no stores, no anything. That's what they focused on. And then they grew. And then they, they, they grew from that small market, which was a boot that competed with a Lucchese boot into more boots. 
And then eventually they branched out and started doing, you know, other, you know, similar products. They, they did belts, for instance, and they started doing that. They, they've evolved to where they have their own storefront and they're basically a large Western brand now that does, you know, stuff even beyond boots, although that's kind of their, their core competency. And that's kind of how they grew. So originally they formed a very small niche in boots and then they added boot brands as they grew and they, they started attacking these different niche markets. And now you look at them a few years later and they're a fairly large Western brand. So as you grow, you know, focusing on a very small market that you can, you can be kind of number one or number two at is a very important strategy. And then you can expand that to add products that you think you can, you can do well in as time goes on. So it's interesting how many successful businesses really take that approach, but it takes a lot of thought to figure out exactly what is your target market and make sure you're not competing with, you know, companies that have a much better cost structure than you that are, that are going to blow you out of the water. So, um, so again, the rule of three and four by Bruce Henderson, very interesting concept. I think it has very broad implications, especially, especially in choosing the market that you want to serve. So hope you got something out of this. Talk to you soon.